Good morning and welcome to Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. It is Friday, October 12th, and we are on episode 61. Uh, I'm here with Ben Lindbergh, who is in New York, New York. Ben, did you take any detours to Brooklyn last night? Uh, No, I slept for a few hours after we recorded yesterday, and that has been enough to keep me going. I felt like I was about to take a trip to Brooklyn, um, so I listened to the last episode of Up and In, which I had been saving for a special occasion, Um, and so that got me through the train ride conscious. So uh, the state of baseball at the moment is uh, that that there are uh, two Game 5s to go today, uh, the Nationals and the Cardinals and the Orioles and the Yankees. Meanwhile, the Giants have beaten the Reds in their Game 5, and the Tigers have beaten the A's in their Game 5. They will be advancing. Um, real quick, when we uh, when everybody talks about the bad scheduling of the 2-3 uh, this year, it uh, if I'm reading this correctly, and I feel like I must not be, but everywhere I go says the same thing, the ALCS begins tomorrow? Yes, it does. That seems to me uh, far crazier. Uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that the Orioles and Yankees have to play tonight and possibly uh, both managers said it would be sort of a all-hands-on-deck situation where anyone would be available and everyone would be used if necessary. Um, I don't know what time the game is tomorrow, but I assume it's prime time. Uh, yeah, that is a very, very quick turnaround. It is a very quick turnaround. I feel, I mean, I guess you don't expect every game to go five games, and so you don't want to leave too much, mm-hmm. um, too much soft space in there. And they, baseball really loves to start these things on Saturdays. Um, but I would be complaining like crazy if I were the Yankees and the Orioles and I did not get even a single day off between my series. Whatever, though. Um, so uh, the Tigers won, and. I think that I have no choice but to say one more time that I cannot believe that the strength of a team's ace does not correlate <laughs> to postseason success. This was entirely Justin Verlander's series. Mm-hmm. Uh, the A's, you get the sense, had uh, no chance of winning unless they swept the three medal games because Justin Verlander is simply too good. Um, and he was extremely good in this series. He uh pitched a complete game shutout yesterday uh he was maybe even better in the first game total he threw 16 innings struck out 22 allowed one run um so uh uh, i don't know why why (laughs) yeah i didn't see any of yesterday's game because i was at the yankees game and then coming home from that and i looked at the box score on my way back and saw that Justin Verlander had gone nine innings and struck out 11, and I wondered if I had somehow looked at the game one box score because it looked very much like that one. Um, so you say he was not quite as dominant, or I guess it's hard to even say. No, I mean, he was as dominant as you could be right. yesterday. It's just that he was also as dominant as you could be in game one, and uh, so it's conceivable that if you've figured out a way to measure dominance that you might somehow come up with game one being more dominant i'm not saying that he was less dominant yesterday mm-hmm. he w- he was dominant mm-hmm. dominant yes uh yeah dominant. well i'm i'm still confused about why 
we found what I, we did or why I, I guess what I yeah I, I mean i guess it is an optical illusion when you watch the ace um pitch so well and confirm your expectations i mean there's definitely you i think you probably heard this going into the series you will hear about it going into the next series you'll hear about it next year when verlander's team makes the playoffs there is always a um, assumption going in that the ace is going to win their games and that it, he cannot be beaten and we take it far too much for granted and so when you see verlander actually looking unbeatable it just feels like it was fate and that um, that's just the only way you can do it in truth, Verlander's Tigers won uh, something like 60, well, I'll do the math, 63.6% of the games Verlander started this year. So uh, it really isn't that overwhelming uh, an advantage to have the, the, the superior pitcher. It feels like it is when you're watching it, but of course these guys do lose. And the A's could have won one of these games uh, if they had, um, you know, it, I mean, Verlander lost a lot of games. Well, maybe CC Sabathia will be terrible tonight, and then it will make more sense. Yeah, that's true. Although, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any pitcher in baseball who we treat. I guess, well, no, probably not. I, I don't think there's any pitcher in baseball that we treat as such an automatic win as Verlander, and that makes sense because he's the best pitcher in baseball. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems like the, the gap that, um, that we uh, have left between Verlander and the next best pitcher is probably the biggest gap I guess maybe the Pedro years were the biggest gap that um, of our lifetime between Pedro and the next best starter. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, although Randy Johnson yes, I was going to say in that time he was so maybe at quite a high level himself. He was at quite a high level himself, and then I think certainly in the '90s you didn't have that sort of uh, gap between one and two. And uh, I don't even know who the best starter was during the '80s. I could I couldn't tell you in a million years who the best star. I mean, it would have been Jack Morris probably by conventional wisdom, and, and as we know, he did win the most games. He did win the most games. I mean, Dave Steve was probably his equal, roughly. So, uh, yeah. So right now, Verlander might be the clearest ace. I don't know. I still think Pedro over Randy Johnson probably for those three or four years mm-hmm. was a, was was. I mean, Pedro it was better than anybody in history over those three and four years, right? Uh, yeah. Or yes, I think so. I guess there are people who are close, and you could maybe, if you don't totally believe in park factors and league factors and that sort of thing, you could make a case for someone else. But yes, I would not disagree with that. Maybe Clemens from like 88 to 91. Maybe. Maybe. Although, I don't know. You have that Dwight Gooden overlap and Mm -hmm. and Greg Maddox coming in. Anyway, so the, uh, the A's started this year well i guess the a's right now have i think seven players who were on their active roster last year um it was a remarkable turnaround it was i don't even really get the sense that um that this is going to go down as a demerit for billy bean i i haven't seen much petty sniping about the a's Mm -hmm. uh but maybe it'll come maybe this is a uh, Maybe the maybe the petty sniping comes out after the uh, the exciting uh, and and inspirational glow of victory fades. Oh. But um, as I noted last night um, via Twitter.com, um, the A's have now in Billy Bean's career uh, played six division series. They've lost five of them. You might conclude that they are terrible losers, but they are th- 13 and 15 in the actual games. So they are essentially uh, his. Um, uh, his his Billy Bean Billy Bean's Billy Beanness does seem to work pretty well in the postseason, and it is just kind of the the fluke of um, 
distribution. Yeah, uh, I mean, they went five games, and no one is going to blame Moneyball for losing to Justin Verlander. So they made it respectable, at least. Except they would never have drafted Justin Verlander because Justin Verlander was a high school <laughs> starter, and we have not, you know, if, if obviously they, they would have, but the, the conventional wisdom mm-hmm. that Billy Bean does not change might have right. led some people to make some. Anyway, whatever. Uh, of course, they would have drafted Justin Verlander. Um, let's see. What else? There was a, a Nationals game. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> There was a a Reds game. There was a Reds game and a Giants game, and the Giants put that one away. The Giants will move forward. Um, I wrote the recap for that game. You did. You you haven't read it, I'm sure. Uh, Uh, I've read parts of it, and I read Jason's diary of it, so I have some idea what went on. It's really striking to me how probably poorly both teams played and um you feel bad because it, it seems like the margin in the series was small enough that you can pretty closely tie it to the to the reds losing their ace after one batter um and the giants i would say didn't get a good start this series i mean Ver, uh, vogel song uh pitched five innings and gave up one run um but he didn't you know he didn't look all that great and he did only pitch five innings and it their their closer also looked pretty terrible um as the series went on Sergio Romo and um so it's one of those things where they move on and as a Giants fan you're excited and as a Giant you're excited but there's a lot of I would say a lot of concern about the state of their entire pitching staff right now um and uh you know I I I don't know that I would conclude that they're in a great position to move forward to the World Series, but of course they're in as good a position as anyone right now. Um, but yeah, there was a Kane had his second outing in a row where he sort of had to fight to get into the fifth, and um, uh, now they're going to probably move Linscombe back into the rotation. So they lose their uh, bullpen stopper as well. Uh, <laughs> although I'm sure that they'll be just fine not having to watch Barry Zito throw pitches. <laughs> yes, uh, and the Nationals won their Detweiler game, which maybe takes some of the Strasburg pressure off, at least temporarily, unless they lose tonight. Uh, yeah, because uh, Gio Gonzalez may have, they may have replaced Gio Gonzalez in the rotation with Strasburg, <laughs> uh, is how people will remember this 40 years from now. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they, Detweiler did just fine. I mean, it's all these sort of like what would have happened things are weird. Because if, if, I mean, given the, the, the fragile balance of our universe, if, if uh, Strasburg had thrown even one more pitch as a national, everything that you and I know as reality would have turned out differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not so much a matter of simply slotting a guy into another spot. But yes, the nationals uh, could quiet the whole Strasburg meme with one more victory tonight. And uh, a bunch more victories after that, probably. Yeah, 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 probably. <laughs> Nine more victories. Nine more victories, <laughs> and they can quiet everything about Strasburg. Do, do you know where Strasburg is right now? Like, what is he doing? Is he in the dugout? Are they showing him? Because I would think if you were a uh, TV producer, wouldn't you show Strasburg about four <laughs> or five times an inning? Yeah, I would just kind of have a picture-in-picture set up of him just in we the bottom should... right corner constantly. There should be more Strasburg on our TV than, than Courtney Cox <laughs> and Jimmy Fallon. Yes, I'd support that. 
But I haven't seen him. Have you seen him? Does anybody know? Uh, I don't know. He must be with the I'm, team. I'm Googling. Where is Steven Strasburg? <laughs> uh, Nationals? No, that's not going to work. No, nope, they don't seem to say. Bummer. He must be with them unless it would be too painful for the Nationals to see him up close and not have him pitch. And so they decided to separate them. But that doesn't seem likely. Uh, well, the closest thing I'm going to get to an answer is a question that was asked on Yahoo Answers one year and four <laughs> months ago, so that probably won't help. Well, someone will tweet at us and, and tell us the answer and berate us for not knowing it. Um, Brian Wilson and Freddie Sanchez were in the Giants' dugout, so there's some precedent, obviously, for injured players or yes. whatever you want Strasburg to be there. But it just feels to me like you'd see him a lot more. Mariano Rivera is in the Yankees' dugout. Yeah, so he's probably in there. Mm -hmm. That'll give me something to watch. (laughs) Uh, And then, and you went to the Yankees game last night. I did. How was that? Uh, It was another very long game. It was about four and a half hours of baseball, and there was very little scoring during those four and a half hours. So it was, uh, I guess it was a well-played game, and it was an entertaining game, and there was pressure and high stakes and all those nice things. Um, There were also many, many, many pitching changes. Uh, Basically every reliever on either team, on both teams, was used. Um, The Yankees used eight pitchers. The Orioles also used eight pitchers, uh, pretty much everyone except Chris Tillman. And that was kind of unprecedented for a, a game that was as low scoring. Uh, there has never been a game, at least in the regular season, where so many pitchers were used with so few runs scored, except for one game two years ago that lasted 20 innings. Um, and so that was unusual. It was just a whole lot of matchups. And normally when you see that many pitchers in a game, it's because some of those pitchers aren't pitching well and have to be replaced. And in this case, it was just the combination of an extra inning game and... A lot of matchups because managers were uh, playing for every little edge that they could get. Um, I suppose that we'll probably uh, use this as a more formal topic later. But um, Darren O'Day yes. is he perhaps is he perhaps the breakout star of this op- October? Yes, I uh, I interrupted myself writing about him to record this podcast. Uh, he was great last night. He was probably. Um, if you want to pick an, an MVP for the Orioles of that game, I would probably give it to him, although Nate McLeod was also good. Uh, he pitched two and two-thirds innings, which was the most he had pitched in any appearance since 2008. Um, he struck out A-Rod for the third time in this series in a very high-leverage spot where A-Rod really just had to get a ball to the outfield for the Yankees to take a lead. Uh yeah, and he was great. He came in in the eighth. He got two outs. He pitched the ninth and the tenth. Um, and it's interesting because he's a side armor or a submariner, and normally you expect someone like that to have a giant platoon split and be more of a situational pitcher, whereas he was quite comfortable comfortable going two and two-thirds and pitched two innings five times this season and doesn't have a big platoon split. Um which is unusual, I think. And I asked him about that after the game, and he 
he had a giant bandage wrapping his entire shoulder and arm and talked about how tired he was. But he said that the platoon split thing is something that he's worked on a lot and that he thinks he's gotten much better at over the years uh, dealing with opposite-handed hitters. And his answer was that he works up in the zone more so than you'll see typical people who throw from his arm angle uh, do that. Um, and that he changes eye levels more than than you would see other people doing that, which I haven't had really a, a chance to look into because a lot of times players will say something like that and it will sort of sound reasonable and then you'll look up the numbers and you won't really see anything that backs up what they were saying. Um, yeah, that sort of describes Justin Masterson too, and he's got maybe the biggest split in the game. Yeah, so I, I don't know what it is really. Uh, that was sort of his explanation um and i asked him if he prepared any differently for this series than he did during the regular season knowing that he would be facing guys like jeter and a-rod probably three or four times in important spots and he said not really um he said he kind of just lets matt weeders do everything uh and that matt weeders has perfect recall of every pitch he has ever thrown and knows what they did last time and what worked and what they should do this time. And so he watches some video, but mainly he just trusts Matt Weeders. Um, but yeah, I think Darren O'Day's uh, profile has certainly been raised by this. And he's has an interesting story in that he was undrafted out of college and he was uh, allowed to be Rule 5 by a team and he was claimed on waivers twice. Um, so he's been a guy who teams have not wanted or or not really gone out of their way to keep in the past but um he has been excellent this year and not just this year but in recent years yeah it's interesting we talk about sometimes how bullpens come together in weird ways and you can find these sort of gems off the scrap heap but the the counter to that is of course that some team is always letting a good reliever go that as hard as it is to i mean as easy as it sometimes seems to find a great reliever it's also uh just as easy to give up a great one and the rangers the rangers had this awesome darren o'day for two years mm -hmm. and from 2009 to 2010 he had an era below two um he had a great strikeout to walk ratio um and he basically had 16 bad innings for him in 2011 and they let him go as um on waivers to, to Baltimore and uh it's uh yeah I mean it, you uh relievers are so volatile that you're uh, just as liable to give up too early on a guy and uh yeah I mean uh, O'Day I don't know maybe Strope but O'Day might be the best part of that bullpen um yeah Strope was good too last night he went two innings um but I guess as soon as we say that someone is a breakout bullpen star uh he will be bad yeah, the Orioles, when I wrote about the Orioles' uh, bullpen maybe two months ago or a month and a half ago, they had um, Strope and O'Day and Johnson had uh, were all like in the top three in uh, win probability added among relievers, and they were um, really – it, it was a good bullpen. But what you saw last night, as you pointed out, has become an extremely deep bullpen with Hunter and Mattis, where now – I mean, I think the reason that you can go – eight pitchers in and only allow one run is that all eight of those, all seven of those relievers are really good. I mean, their bullpen is crazy deep. And if there's uh, you, you could totally see them winning a game uh, where 
you know, that they get eight or nine innings out of their bullpen if they, you know, don't trust their starting pitcher. I mean, that's a, a real possibility for them going forward. Yeah, I talked to Hunter, too, because he struck out A-Rod also, um, which is kind of a theme in this series. Uh, he struck out A-Rod yesterday on a 97-mile-per-hour fastball, and it's still strange to see Tommy Hunter throwing 97-mile-per-hour fastballs. Um, so I kind of asked him about the, the velocity boost and whether he knew he had that in him in short bursts before he made this transition or whether it surprised even him and and whether there are certain guys who gain more when they go to the bullpen than others and uh, a bunch of other questions in that vein. And basically he said, nah, I always threw hard. So that was the answer there. So, Very helpful. Yeah. Very helpful answer. The lesson is that interviewing players is often disappointing. Yeah, for them too. <laughs> yes, definitely for them. But they don't have any expectations that it will be rewarding. So um, for them, it's it's uh, exactly as underwhelming as they expect it to be. Well, I linked to a Matt Latos uh, pregame interview in my recap. And <laughs> next time you, <laughs> anytime you go to the park and are going to interview players, I would recommend you just watch that Matt Latos interview to really set your expectations at a realistic level. Right. Uh, all right, let's end it, and we'll be back tomorrow to talk about the winners of the Orioles-Yankees game and the Washington Nationals-St. Louis Cardinals game. Wait, isn't tomorrow a weekend? Oh, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> we will be back on Monday morning to talk about games one and two of the ALCS and game one of the NLCS. You got everyone's hopes up for a weekend show. We'll never live this down. Uh, yeah, we'll be back Monday. Sorry, folks.